Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, normally, and, and I, I had the same going question. through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder time. and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was a really weird one to write because every time I tried to write became a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Catherine Miles. Miles is the author of the new book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The book officially goes on sale on May 3rd. Trailed is about the 1996 murders of Lolly Winnens and Julie Williams. The two young women had entered Virginia's Shenandoah National Park. They were going on a week-long backcountry camping trip. When they didn't return, park rangers began searching. That's when they found the scene of horror at their campsite. I was their contemporary in terms of age, and they were murdered, we believe, in late May of 1996, which was right around my college graduation. So when I found out about this murder and the fact that they were two of multiple people and multiple women um, who had been murdered either on or very near the Appalachian Trail, it really shattered my sense of security in the wilderness. The murders were never solved. Then, in 2016, on the 20th anniversary of the case, the FBI announced they wanted to reinvestigate. That's when Miles thought she had a magazine story on her hands. But as soon as I started working uh, with the FBI on this case, as soon as I was able to access some of the case files from, from the, the court case, it was very obvious to me that this case was much more complicated and that there was frankly, um, some some real missteps, if not outright malfeasance on the part of the justice system that had made this case so difficult to solve. And that's when I really realized that we weren't talking about a 5,000 word piece here. We were talking about a 100,000 word piece here. This is the second time that Miles has been on the podcast. We talked back in September of 2016, right around the time she started thinking she would write about this case. At the time, we talked about her Boston Globe story about a woman who had also died while hiking. That death happened after the woman got lost on the Appalachian Trail. Miles is the author of five books, including Quakeland, On the Road to America's Next Devastating Earthquake. Her essays and articles have appeared in the New York Times, Outside, the Boston Globe, Politico, and more. 
She's been anthologized by Best American Essays and Best American Sports Writing. As usual, I've put links to everything we've talked about on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Catherine, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you. This will be the second time we've talked on the show. We talked a few years ago, and I'm actually going to bring that up in a little bit. But today we're talking about your new book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders, which comes out officially on May 3rd. And it's a book that I read and really, really um, enjoyed reading uh, and thought it was a a great piece of reporting. Uh, We'll talk about that. But but to start things off, can you tell me uh, about the book? Sure. It uh, this is a book about a case. It's a a double murder that occurred in 1996 in Shenandoah National Park. And when it happened, it really rocked the trail community, people who backpack and camp, especially people who identify as subordinate social groups, you know, women, people of color, uh, LGBTQ type folks. So um, it had a huge impact in 1996 when the murder occurred. That's really continued. But then in 2002, in direct response to September 11th, then attorney John Ashcroft made a very public announcement that he intended to treat this case as the first federal crime to be tried under brand new hate crime legislation that had largely come out of September 11th. And so then it became this very political case as well. Um, So I was really interested in in both components of those, both in terms of the environmental impact that this had on the way in which people relate to and connect with the wilderness, and also this highly politicized case that ultimately became questions of social justice and the legal system as well. So the two women who were murdered uh, were Lolly and Julie. Um, uh, when did you first learn about about them? I learned about this case not long after it happened. Uh, like Lolly and Julie, um, I was also a sexual assault survivor who had really found a sense of purpose and strength on the trail. And it was through backpacking that I really sort of found a way to, to kind of get back into my body as sort of a positive space. And um, I was their contemporary in terms of age. And they were murdered, we believe, in late May of 1996, which was right around my college graduation. And it was right when um, I was kind of coming to terms with some of the same things they were coming to terms with. So when I found out about this murder and the fact that they were two of multiple people and multiple women um, who had been murdered either on or very near the Appalachian Trail, it really shattered my sense of security in the wilderness. And then by utter coincidence, my first college teaching job was at the same uh, college where, where Lolly had been a student. And so I was there when that very public indictment by John Ashcroft was announced. And I saw firsthand how impacted that community was both by the murders and then by news of this indictment and sort of a renewed national interest in the case. Yeah. And and so they were murdered back in 1996, I believe. Is that correct? correct? Mm -hmm. Um, And we're sitting here in 2022. Um, When did you uh, think this could be a book or a book that you would want to write? 
Sure. Uh, and I still don't know if it's a book that I want to write, but we could talk about that too. Um, the 20th anniversary of this case, um, the FBI made some very public announcements about wanting to reinvestigate it. And at the time, I was working as a full-time trail correspondent for Outside Magazine. And so it was you know, very much within the wheelhouse of, of what my beat was at that magazine. And knowing firsthand the impact of this case, I had pitched it to my editor as a, a long form piece, um, which I thought would be a very straightforward feature magazine and frankly, kind of an easy feature magazine piece to, to write. And I could kind of dart around the edges of what was so hard about this case. But as soon as I started working uh, with the FBI on this case, as soon as I was able to access some of the case files from from the, the court case, it was very obvious to me that this case was much more complicated and that there was frankly um, some, some real missteps, if not outright malfeasance on the part of the justice system that had made this case so difficult to solve. And that's when I really realized that we weren't talking about a 5,000 word piece here. We were talking about a 100,000 word piece here. I remember when we talked on the show uh, back in September of 2016, uh, when uh, when I had you on the show and we talked about your Boston Globe story about Jerry Largay, uh, it seems like the time that this is about the time all of this was also happening. Is that correct? Right. And and Jerry Largay, so she was a, a retired nurse in her 60s, had decided to through hike the Appalachian Trail and had gone missing while she was in Maine, had prompted this huge hunt um for her um and then ultimately her body was found several years later and in that in my reporting i had spent a lot of time with the first responders who were in the scene um i think a lot of people initially suspected foul play i certainly suspected foul play initially um and then we learned that she had just very tragically gotten lost and had managed to keep herself alive for 21 days and then had had perished and and in that reporting i had become quite close with the family um, and had really sort of learned firsthand the secondary impact that I think we as writers and journalists experience when we sit and empathize with people who have undergone incredible tragedy. There's a, there's a secondary trauma that I think comes from reporting that if you're, if you're willing to really embrace the story. And so, so that was actually part of my initial apprehension going into this book is, is reporting on Jerry Largay had been really rewarding, but it had also taken a huge emotional toll. And I knew that this would take an even bigger one. What made you go ahead and want to push forward then? I had had a long talk with my literary agent who I trust implicitly. And she had always seen the way in which this is a story, not just about a murder and a miscarriage of justice, but also about equal access to the wilderness who gets to be in the wilderness and why. And that is such a passionate interest of mine um, that I thought that telling this story could possibly force some kind of reckoning, both in terms of issues of social justice and how prosecutions happen, and then also this reckoning about access to the wilderness, particularly for people in those so-called subordinate groups. I know uh, you are an avid hiker, uh, and you mentioned that a little bit earlier. Uh, and I'm curious, especially you know when you wrote the piece on Jerry Largay, when you were reporting on on this book, um, how much uh, do you use your own experience uh, when you're reporting and writing? 
A lot. I mean, I think I think the best way to tackle an issue, whether you're, you know, you're writing as an essayist or, or journalist or whatever it can be, is I mean, you have to know the topic inside and out before you get started, right? You have to know what questions to ask. And you also, I think, you know, and I said this to you maybe before in the 2016 interview is empathy is such an important part of the work that we do. And if you can't understand why something was affecting, then I think it's really hard to sit and and be with someone as they tell their affected story, you know? And so for me, certainly a background with through hiking and section hiking and being on the Appalachian Trail and places like that certainly meant that I could be conversant, right? And and I could certainly talk the talk of, of a lot of the people who were involved in this. And and I think hopefully I could sort of imbue Lolly and Julie's story with with, you know, some experience that would help bring their lives to sort of this rounded form on the page because I could imagine them backpacking. I could imagine them in certain situations because I'd been in them too. I'm curious, um, uh, you mentioned talking to parents uh, and people who, who were tied to um, uh, the, the women that you've written about, right? And with uh, Jerry, that was a death that had kind of, uh, it had just it just happened, right? I mean, it wasn't like a long time uh, space in between. Uh, and now, uh, of course, my mind is blanking on which uh, whose parents you spoke to. It was one group you mm-hmm. did, one woman you did and one that you didn't. Um, and maybe you can remind me on that, but what, this is like, this happened such a long time ago. So what was it like to talk with them 25, 20 to 25 years after it happened? Sure. Sure. And, and I knew for a variety of reasons, both sort of ethical and also in terms of my ability to, to storytell that I wouldn't be able to do this book without the express permission and cooperation and trust of both sets. Um, and so the very first thing that I did was I approached Julie's, Julie Williams's family and told them that, that this is what I intended to do. A lot about myself, you know, and, and a lot of conversations. They were rightfully concerned and wary because this case had become so political, because Julie's sexuality had become so political and, and literally front page news. They were understandably wary and protective of their daughter's legacy and didn't want more of that politicization to happen. So we had a lot of talks about what I thought the book was going to look like, what I thought their role was going to be um, to get to a place where they felt comfortable. Um, Lolly was estranged from her family. She was a um, an incest survivor, and that experience had really rocked the family and, and frankly rocked Lolly in some really powerful and understandable ways. So her her circle of friends had kind of become her family. And and I went through the same process with the friends too, um, meeting with all of them and, and really kind of getting to know them and letting them get to know me so that they would feel comfortable sharing stories. Because a huge part of this book for me is is not only trying to sort of tell the legacy of these two extraordinary humans who had already done so much by the time they were 24 and 26. But, but this is also a love story, you know, and, and their story is this great love story. And, and I wasn't going to be able to tell that in a meaningful way without dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews of basically everyone who had encountered them in a, in a meaningful way over, over the years that they were together. 
you did you did so much research and reporting on this project and as i was reading it i was like oh my gosh i don't know if i could do this much um but I'm, i couldn't help wondering if because you ha- you had to do so much reporting right and you gathered so much information if during that process it really changed the book and what you thought it would originally be or is this the book that you really envisioned at the start Absolutely not, <laughs> for multiple reasons. The first is, is that I think that I went into this book with a lot of the same confirma- confirmation bias that I sort of ultimately accuse both the prosecutors and the investigators of, is I assumed, like a lot of people, that in 2002, when this indictment was announced, that, of course, the, the Department of Justice had the right guy, right? Because justice had been served. The process had followed the way it was supposed to. The legal system worked, right? And so I went in assuming that the person who was indicted, uh, who currently is in this sort of strange double jeopardy situation because the charges were uh, um, eventually dismissed against him in a phrase that's called without prejudice, which basically means he can be brought back to trial at any time. Um, So it took quite a while before I was really willing to question, I think, as a reporter. And that's that's something that I've really had to kind of own as a a real short-sightedness of me going into this, is I do think I went in assuming that he was guilty, right? And in hindsight, I should have gone in much more neutral, I think. The other thing is that when I had delivered the original draft of the manuscript to my editor, I had done a really good job of hiding behind other people's story, which I think as journalists, some of us just love to do, right? Like, I don't have to expose myself. I'm not a memoir writer. That's scary, right? So I'm going to tell these other people's stories. But but all along the, the way, I had been talking to her about my process, and I had been telling her what my process had been. Um, and she also knew why I was so invested in the story to begin with. And she's like, you can't You cannot tell the story as a disinterested observer. First of all, that's taking some of the best part of the story out. And it's not even all that genuine, you know. And so so she sent me back um, and was like, you need to put yourself in this book. And I had I fought that as hard as I could, you know, for a variety of reasons. I don't like writing memoir. And I also was really nervous. This is right when American Dirt was coming out. and, And there was a lot of controversy about who can tell whose stories. And um, I was very nervous that there might be an accusation of me trying to appropriate the story of these two women. And so so there was a lot of sort of um, internal negotiation that I was doing with myself to get to the place that I was willing to weave my story into this larger one. You, you actually led right into the next question I was going <laughs> to ask. And that was, um, is this the first time that you've very much been... Um, kind of a character in your own reporting? My first book, Adventures with Ari, was a fair amount of memoir, but it was the safest possible memoir, right? I was spending a year in nature with my puppy, right? So (laughs) the stakes were very, very low. Um, But then during the Justice Kavanaugh uh, confirmation hearings, Um, I had started working on this book and I was watching the way in which people were treating Christine Blase Ford. And I was just getting furious, you know, because I kept thinking, you know, 
her experience and my experience or her experience as she tells it and my experience were, were very similar teenage date rape situations. And I also can't remember everything perfectly, but I'm really confident it happened. And I was watching this and I, and I was getting so angry. And so for me, I made a fairly big departure, which was I contacted my editor at the Boston Globe where I had been writing for the magazine. And and I, and I said, you know, I want to write an op-ed on this. And I have never done something like that before. And so I did write this very personal op-ed about my experience. Um, and it was one of the most terrifying things I think I've ever done. Um, but the, the response was overwhelmingly positive. And I think that made me feel more emboldened to go ahead and do that in a longer way. Yeah, and you do write about, uh, within this book, about um, the time you were sexually assaulted um, and, and I was, you know, be, besides writing the opinion piece, I was like what your thought process was like when it came down to, okay, I need to include this, how much and where and that type, that type, those, that type of decision making process, um, when you're actually sitting down to write. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. And, um, my editor, uh, Betsy Glick is also the publisher at Algonquin and she is one of the smartest humans I know. And she's also one of the most compassionate humans I know. And it took a lot of back and forth between the two of us. Um, in one of her previous careers was she was, she, uh, she, uh, was the true crime editor at People Magazine. And so she had a real sense of, I think, um, appropriateness and scale with true crime. There were a couple of scenes that I had written in this book where I was literally reporting and she would write back and she's like, we, you cannot, <laughs> this is way too graphic. This is way too many details. Absolutely not. And so I really, really relied heavily and leaned on her to help me get a sense of proportion and tone along the way. We're going to take a short break in one minute. I'll be back with more from Catherine Miles. She is the author of Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The book goes on sale on May 3rd. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take journalism and broadcast courses taught by professionals in the industry, including those from ESPN and the WWE. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Catherine Miles. Miles wrote the book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The book goes on sale on May 3rd. I know, uh, like I've mentioned this a couple of times, but there's so much reporting involved uh, to pull this off. And I'm curious what your process was like when it came to just getting it, just getting started. Like, where did you start? What was the, the first 
person you reached out to and then how did that like I guess start the the domino effect Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well when this was a feature story the first thing I had done was reach out to the FBI um, because they were handling the case that seemed logical to me and there was a lot there was at least six months of back and forth with the FBI to grant me access. Um, but they did eventually grant me access. I think at the time they thought it was gonna be a very sort of pro FBI piece and it was gonna be good publicity. So um, they gave me permission to spend a day at the FBI forensic lab at Quantico. Um, and then they sort of orchestrated and curated this, this trip to the murder scene with um, one of their lead uh, evidence response team individuals, uh, the lead agent on the case, and then also the National Park Service uh, law enforcement rangers who had been involved. Because this was a national park, it was joint purview between the FBI and the National Park Service. So, so that was my first visit to the murder scene. That was my first foray into everything. Um, and obviously was a very, I think, one-sided account, right? And again, a very sort of pro law enforcement account. Um, and then as soon as it became a book, I had contacted the Williams family. And then it was really, I, it was a lot of time sitting and talking and, and, and in some cases even befriending, you know, the people closest to Lolly and Julie and making sure that I knew their story first. It was really important to me too, that I keep them foregrounded. I think far too often true crime focuses on the perpetrator. I think we get really interested in the, the sort of abnormal criminal psychology and, and, and people are understandably fascinated, you know, with serial killers or whatever else. And as a result, I think the victims lose their agency in some of these tellings. And it was really important to me that Lolly and Julie always remain very fully formed humans on the page throughout the whole book. Can you talk about being empathetic as a reporter? Because I feel like we were always taught, uh, or maybe maybe I'm imagining this, that we had to be so like down the center and not make connections, or you know what I mean, in terms of when we're interviewing people to to keep it separate. Um, but but I've uh, you know I teach I teach my students nowadays, and I think I've talked with so many people on the podcast that are that are all about this empathy in reporting and how. Um, how important it is. Uh, when, when, did, when did this, uh, when did you start to notice this or, or, or what, what, what's it like for you? Yeah. And I think, you know, if we're going to be good at our jobs as journalists, we have to have different reporting styles and techniques, right? And we have to know when to use them. And sometimes having that tough interview, right, where we're really just kind of like hammering someone, that's appropriate, right? And there are times when being completely objective and um, distant as a human, right? So that, you know, that's also appropriate. But, but I just don't believe that you can ask someone to tell you the worst day of their life and how it felt if you haven't built trust and connection. I just wrote a story last year um, about the first fatal shark attack in the state of Maine. And I was literally asking a young woman who had been swimming with her mom when her mom was, you know, att attacked and mortally wounded and, and killed by this great white shark. You know, I mean, there is no easy way to say to someone, you know, I'm so sorry that your mom was killed by a shark and that you had to witness it. What was that like? Right. I mean, you can't, there's, that's just cruel really, you know? And so, 
it starts much slower than that. And it's it's getting somebody to a place where, where they can rightfully trust you. And of course they should. Over the course of, of time that you were doing this um, uh, reporting, what were some of the most surprising or angering uh, or just any information that you you came across as you were you were doing the investigation at this point in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I did not come at this with a background in covering the legal system or courts, right? That's never been, I mean, I started off pre-law as an undergraduate, but that's as close as I'm going to get to having any background in this. And so I think for me, the real education was understanding just how broken the legal system is. You know, first of all, there's something like 250,000 unsolved cold murder cases in this country. There's a backlog of years and years and years of rape kits that have been tested. And then having partnered with the Innocence Project to do the investigation in a lot of this book, um, this idea of wrongful conviction and just the sheer number of people who are now being exonerated because DNA technology is catching up and understanding how many people are sitting in prison for crimes they didn't commit was utterly revelatory and disturbing to me. Um, and, and that's where I was just madly scrambling to sort of catch up to, to what these Innocence Project attorneys, you know, have known and almost kind of roll their eyes at at a daily basis. I know you, uh, you said this is kind of the first time you've done a true crime uh, a book or, or, or assignment. Do you see yourself doing more in the future? This idea of wrongful conviction and exoneration and the way in which bias is is really influencing the legal system has definitely stuck with me. So right now I'm working on an article that'll be out this summer for Mother Jones, looking at people who have been wrongly convicted of shaking babies to death. Um, and so just understanding how pervasive this is and how important it is that these exoneration attorneys have a place to do their work is definitely something I feel really passionate and involved in right now. One thing I, I think I've asked every single person I've done had on the show since April, 2020 is um, what I, were you still reporting when the pandemic hit? Uh, and uh, if so, how did, how did, how did, how did you get, a, how did you work around that? Yeah. And, you know, the pandemic has I don't think we've really started to understand yet the way in which the pandemic impacted journalism in two ways. I mean, first of all, all the travel and everything at every publication I write for froze for a good six months. Right. So especially people who were freelancers, freelancers were fundamentally unemployed for a good at least six months. And I think we still haven't really reckoned with that from a, you know, sort of, you know, just financial perspective um, and what that meant to not having people out doing firsthand reporting. Um, I wrote for a few publications like Politico, where it was really advantageous for them to have me. I live here in Maine. Um, And so having somebody in New England who could drive places was good for them. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us had to resort to phone and Zoom and so much gets lost. I mean, there's nothing like on the ground, boots on the ground reporting. It's it's where stories come alive. It's where we can actually like get the details that we really need and, you know, forge the relationships and get the depth that we really need. And and I don't know that you can replace that with a Zoom call. I, I will say I do like doing gangry podcasts on Zoom. So that's come about, <laughs> which I had never <laughs> done before. Um, but did you, I mean, did you learn, uh, 
did you learn anything that like going through these new processes that you're taking away that might be helpful? I mean, I think I'm a better listener since you have to just really, all you have is words at that point. You know, I love the little details when I'm reporting. I love, you know, interviewing a paleontologist and realizing that the paleontologist has a hundred different hot sauce bottles, you know, on the shelf behind her head. That's, that's really interesting to me, you know, and I, cause I just love that kind of color when I'm writing. Um, without that, I think you just really have to listen and listen in some different ways. And I think get better too about asking questions that can compensate for what's lost by not being there in person. The, uh, you, you mentioned that, um, you turned in the first draft and, uh, it, it was sent back to you to make revisions. Um, what, what was the, the, the writing process like, uh, for you with regards to this? Like, what were you thinking, um, when you sat down to write that first draft? And then once you got the feedback, where, where was your mind? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, full disclosure, I'm a total scaredy cat. Like I don't watch horror movies. I don't (laughs) stuff like that just scares the bejesus out of me. And so the first thing I had to do was set really clear boundaries for myself so that I could sleep at night. I mean, I was really aware of the toll these types of stories have taken on people. Um, Annette McGivney writes really powerfully about that in her book. Uh, you know, Michelle McNamara, you know, ultimately died writing her book. And there's been other journalists who have written about the fact that they've literally been consumed by stories. And 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 so knowing that, um, I set boundaries that I wouldn't normally set. So I was not going to work on this after dark was, a, was one boundary I set for myself. So that made work days really short during winters in Maine, yeah. you know. Um, but I felt like in a way that I've never felt before, I felt like my mental health had to be really guarded. Um, So it was slow going at times for sure. Um, And there were times where it was just too much. It was just too awful. And I had to take a break, you know? Um, And so again, really patient editor who was willing to work with that, you know? And then it was a matter of um, telling a story where normally I think we would use a narrative, that sort of classic narrative arc that's building up, you know, to the climax, to the end of the suspense, right? If, if this was a movie, if, if the murder was a movie, right? We wouldn't know how it ends, right? Or anything like that until the end. But, but everybody knows how this murder happened and how it ended. And, you know, it happened 20 some years ago. And so, so that wasn't going to work, right? I couldn't act like we didn't all know it. And so then it was also a question of organization and chronological organization wasn't really going to work. So I actually start with the crime itself in the book and then backfill. And then, you know, there's some weaving that happens because I felt like I had to build tension a different way. Uh, Definitely different from uh, Quakeland and uh, the, the Sandy uh, books, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe Sandy a little bit, just because there was that sort of TikTok component to Superstorm, um, but wildly different than Quakeland for sure. Do you uh, have any ideas on what might be next? So I have these magazine articles um, that I'm working on and uh, I need an emotional break. You know, I've just, I've somehow become like the grim reaper of journalism. I had an editor at a fantastic publication 
email me and he's like, hey, we're working on the story about a serial killer and you were the first person that came to mind. And I don't, I don't know that I'm ready for that mantle. <laughs> you know, the when something terrible happens, we call Kate mantle. Um, so I have um, a somewhat lighter project that I am uh, dipping my toe into now, which is looking at the modern inherent, uh, modern inheritance of colonial witchcraft um, and really looking at this notion of like, what do we mean when we talk about a witch hunt? What do we mean when we call someone a witch? Um, which for me, you know, colonial witch, you know, executions feels like an incredible break after everything else. Well, hopefully you will be finding some time to get back out on the trails uh, as the book is coming out, but it comes out on May 3rd. Uh, Catherine, thanks so much for coming on Gangry the Podcast. So thank you for having me. That was Catherine Miles. She reported and wrote Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. The book is published by Algonquin and goes on sale on May 3rd. As usual, I've put links to everything we've talked about on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.